something didn't look quite right about my notes and I realized they were upside down. So that, maybe now that'll help us. All right, well, we will get started. If you guys go ahead and find a seat. Good morning, and thank you for joining us again for our class, Interacting with Islam. And one of the goals of this class is, is to make Islam seem less foreign to us. Uh, one of the reasons we don't tend to interact with Muslims is because we, we don't really understand them. And so the hope here has been to introduce you to some of the basics of a Muslim worldview and, and to discuss some of the points of contact uh, that we're able to have with Muslims. And so last week we spent some time in the Quran to see its denial of the, the fundamentals of Christian theology and the gospel and uh, things that need to be addressed if we're to understand Islam accurately and know how to respond. And so we've hoped to avoid two extremes in this class, on the one hand, we, we want to avoid an attitude toward Muslims that fails to see them as human beings made in the image of God and in need of our compassion and engagement. And on the other hand, we don't want to fail to recognize the clear problems and concerning elements in Islam. Islam is a false religion. It offers no gospel. And, and to say that is not unloving, but the most loving thing we can do if our hope is to offer them Christ. And so part of this process involves inviting Muslims to take an honest look at Islam. And we've, we've looked at some issues with the Quran uh, last week where it gets wrong, basic facts of Christian belief. And we didn't have time to address the question of whether the Quran has been perfectly preserved as Muslims claim, but hopefully you were able to read the article uh, by David Wood, and there's also a chapter in, in James White's book on that subject. So you can check out those resources uh, for more information. Uh, but today we're going to raise the question, is Islam a religion of peace? And here again, we, we want to take an honest look at Islam without making assumptions about what all Muslims believe. And so developing a nuanced answer to this question is important uh, not only for our, our personal engagement with Muslims that we interact with, but for, for our understanding of current events and public policy. All right, so does the word Islam mean peace, as it's often claimed? Well, as we've seen in, in this class, no, the word Islam means submission. Now, ironically, th th this was, a, it was based in a military metaphor, right? It, it's derived from the Arabic word aslama, which means surrender. And etymologically, that's, that's related to the word salam, the Arabic uh, word for peace, since surrendering in warfare brings about the cessation of fighting. But originally, th this was a play on words. Muhammad would say, aslam taslam, uh, which was roughly, if you surrender and become a Muslim, that's what the, the word aslam means, to become a Muslim, then you will have safety. And that's a little bit of a, of a different picture there. Uh, but Islam was not really described as a, a religion of peace until about the 1970s. And so throughout the centuries, that, that has not been how practicing Muslims would have understood Islam. It's really an external, uh, Western interpretation of Islam. 
Now, that's not to say that there aren't peaceful Muslims. And so here's a distinction that we need to keep in mind as we, as we study this. Most Muslims are not violent. Obviously, the vast majority of Muslims are not terrorists. In, in fact, the, the vast majority of Western uh, Muslims would denounce ISIS as hijacking Islam is the way that they'll often describe it. They, they'd say that ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and other extremist organizations do not represent true Islam. They, they, they are just as repulsed by suicide bombers as you and I are. And so they'll, they'll quote verses from the Quran, such as Surah 2, 256, there is no compulsion in religion. Or one that's often cited in, the, in these discussions comes from uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 32 and 33, whosoever kills a person, it shall be as if he had killed all of mankind. Um, now, what's often missed when that, when that verse is, is quoted is that this statement is actually introduced in the Quran as an injunction for the children of Israel. And, and, and a distinction is made that this was not for Muslims. And then the, the, the very next verse ironically says that the enemies of Islam should be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off. Uh, but just because that verse is in the Quran uh, doesn't mean that the Muslim neighbor living next door even knows that it exists, much less wants uh, to see that happen to you. Um, but here's the, here's the point that Nabil Qureshi makes in, in the second book that he came out with, which is titled Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward. Very helpful resource. I put it in, the, in your notes at the end. Uh, but, but here's the distinction that he, he wants us to keep in mind, is that Muslims are not Islam. And Islam is not Muslims, right? We need to distinguish what Islam in its early sources teaches uh, from what most Muslims believe and practice today. And so he writes, on one end of the spectrum, many assume that if the Quran teaches something, then all Muslims believe it. That is false. Many Muslims have not heard of a given teaching. Some might interpret it differently. And others may frankly do their best to ignore it. Some Christians do that as well, right? Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, criticisms of Islam is often taken to be criticism of Muslims. That is equally false. And so here would be the problem with this graphic. Uh, I'll read out the words if you're listening by the podcast or if you have eyes that are too weak to see this. Uh, but basically there's a big uh, circle all the way to the left that says Muslim population, 1.6 billion people. Uh, and then there's a much, much smaller circle uh, for ISIS, which is 80 to 100,000 people. Now they put uh, 0.00625%. I think they did their math incorrectly there and added an extra zero. But the point is uh, less than 1% uh, of all Muslims are represented by ISIS. And then you have the Taliban, which is another uh, 36 uh, and then Al-Qaeda is less than 10,000. Uh, many members from Al-Qaeda have now pledged their allegiance to ISIS. Uh, the, the organization Boko Haram has officially pledged their allegiance to ISIS as well. That happened last year. And so ISIS is not the uh, JV team, as, as somebody has put that uh, one time. Uh, but here, here's the problem with what, what this graphic uh, represents here, right? It, it, what it doesn't reflect is how many people in, in that bubble to the left are sympathetic uh, toward ISIS and others. And so you, you don't have to be a jihadi or a mujahid in order to be sympathetic uh, toward their cause. And there are some concerning studies about the percentages of Muslims around the world who, without joining in ISIS, 
uh, think, you know, there's maybe something to what they have going on there. Uh, but what that graphic also doesn't address is which of these bubbles is actually closest to Islam as Muhammad taught it and modeled it. And so that's something that we're going to raise uh, today. And those are some distinctions we need to keep in mind. So this morning, uh, we'll quickly look at the concept of Sharia in Islam and then the practice of jihad. And then we'll consider the presence of violence in the early history of Islam. All right, so first, understanding Sharia. Uh, Sharia is probably a term that you're familiar with. It, it is Islamic law. It is the code of conduct for Muslims, both in terms of, of their personal ethics as well as civil and criminal law. And, and Sharia, it's, it's a word that means uh, pathway or pathway to water. It's seen to preserve and sustain the person who wants to live a life that is pleasing to Allah. And so there would be some similarities between how a Muslim would view Sharia and how a Jew would view the Torah or how a Christian would see God's law. And that might be helpful to, to recognize this when we think about the Muslim perspective. All right, so we view uh, images like, like this one here. And uh, you know, Sharia will dominate the world. Sharia is the only solution. Uh, that's obviously uh, alarming. But before we react to that without thinking, what we need to remember is that, you know, we believe God's law is the way of wisdom and that all nations are accountable to it and should honor it. And, and we believe that one day every knee will bow before Jesus Christ and that he will dominate the world, right? Uh, at the same time, the Christian and Islamic conceptions of how that's to play out in society are very different. All right, so let's talk about where does Sharia come from? Uh, how does a Muslim know about this standard of conduct? Well, it's the sources we've described in this class, right? Uh, principally, it's the Quran, and then the actions or the sunnah of Muhammad or the sayings of Muhammad that are represented in the hadith. Those are some sources we've been describing. And it also draws from the consensus of Islamic scholars and uh, in, in some cases the, the reasoning of the, the particular Muslim jurist who's involved as well. And so Sharia, we need to understand this. It's not one document. It's not like the constitution. And sometimes when people talk about, well, Sharia law replaced the Constitution in the United States, it's kind of a category error here, right? So Sharia, it's a variety of sources working through this process in order to deliver a code of, of conduct for Muslims. And, and, and it varies depending on the jurist. And so a Muslim will go to an Islamic legal expert to discuss a case such as a woman who wants to divorce her husband for some reason. And so what he'll do is he'll render a decision or a fatwa uh, on what Sharia would dictate for these circumstances. But that decision isn't binding. And, and so she might go to another jurist to get a different fatwa. That's a little bit more uh, what she's looking for. But the point is that there's no one-to-one -one correspondence uh, between what's in the Quran or what Muhammad taught and how Muslims will live their lives. And so Nabil Qureshi writes, to assume that Muslims must live a certain way because the Quran or the Hadith commanded it misses a crucial step in the Islamic worldview, the distillation of Sharia through Muslim 
authorities, right? You know, maybe this comparison will help us out here. In this respect, mainstream Islam is more Catholic than Protestant. Uh, so it's not just the Quran and, and what it dictates that determines how a Muslim is going to live his life. There, there are all sorts of traditions and authority structures that that is uh, funneling through before it comes to them. Uh, there have been Sharia law courts that were established in Great Britain. You might be familiar with them. They mostly uh, handle civil cases. Uh, the vast majority of the cases that they address are divorce cases. And, and Sharia precedent has been appealed to in a few cases in the United States. Uh, for example, in, in New Jersey, there, there was a, a woman uh, who was seeking a restraining order uh, against her husband for abuse, and uh, the the judge uh, would not find in her favor because what the husband was doing was uh, allowed in Islam. Uh, now, that was actually overturned, thankfully, in the appellate court, but there have been a few cases in the United States where some sort of precedent in Islamic law or in Sharia actually gets appealed to in determining the case. But that, that case highlights the concerning elements in the standard interpretations of Sharia law especially in the treatment of women. Uh, you do find wife beating permitted in, in the Quran in chapter 4, verse 34. Uh, in, under Sharia, a woman's testimony is worth half that of a man's. Uh, and, and the justification for that is because she's half as intelligent. And so she might get fuzzy on some of the details, and so maybe the other woman would be there to help uh, remember some of that. Uh, in rape cases... A woman needs to have four witnesses in order to establish it. And just think about how uh, likely that's to be. Otherwise, uh, her accusation of rape, if she doesn't demonstrate that by having four witnesses, will be treated as a confession to having committed, uh, committed adultery uh, if it's a married woman. And so there, there are, in, in, in several Islamic states, there are... Uh, women who are in prison because they sought justice for rape, which obviously prevents many of them from coming forward. Uh, we're, we're probably familiar with, with some of the uh, criminal sanctions in, in nations like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia uh, does have elements of Sharia law nationally, although uh, extremist groups like ISIS would not see Saudi Arabia as a pure Islamic state. It is inconsistent in its application of Sharia. But, but uh, for instance, the whole, uh, you know, cut off your hand for stealing comes straight from the Quran. Chapter 5, verse 38, as for the male thief and the female thief, cut off their hands as a recompense for what they have earned as an exemplary punishment from God. Uh, this is starkly different from the Old Testament uh, criminal law and, and, and civil ethics that are presented there. Uh, sometimes people think an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth uh, sounds cruel, but the, the point there is that there should be a, a, a correspondence between the punishment and the crime there. And so under uh, Old Testament case law, you steal somebody's sheep, you have to restore their sheep, and you have to give them another one uh, you know, in, 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 to repay them for what you've done. Um, but, but here, there, there are, in, in Sharia law, there are some, some sanctions that don't really correspond to the, the crime. Uh, apostasy, converting from Islam to another religion, is a capital offense. And uh, some Muslims, e even who will denounce Islamic terrorism, would, would actually agree to that. They would say that under a legitimate Islamic state, under Sharia law, uh, those who abandon Islam should be killed. Uh, and Nabil Qureshi says that after he converted to, to Christianity, he would ask some of his friends, so 
do you think I should be killed now or what? You know, and, and one of them said, let me get back to you. And uh, after he had done a little research, she said, no. Uh, but if we were living under an Islamic state uh, with a, you know, appropriate Sharia guidelines, then yes, you, uh, you should be ended. Uh, many Western Muslim converts to Christianity, even if they don't face death, will be totally rejected by their, their family. And so um, converting uh, to another religion, converting to Christianity from Islam is, is a major costly decision that they do not enter lightly. All right, well, let's talk about understanding jihad. Uh, sometimes jihad is described as the sixth pillar of Islam. The word jihad means to strive or to struggle. And jihad is the, uh, is the obligation for every Muslim. Uh, Surah 2, verse uh, 216 says, Fighting is prescribed for you, and yet you dislike it. But is it possible that you dislike a thing which is good for you? Right? And jihad can certainly refer to an, an internal struggle to, to overcome one's desires that are contrary to the will of God. And that is how uh, many Muslims today understand and enact the concept of jihad. Uh, there is there's something called the jihad of the tongue or the jihad of the pen, uh, which is which speaking the truth, engaging in apologetics would be how a lot of Muslims would understand the concept of jihad. But but included in this, and especially originally, is is clearly an external waging of war against the enemies of Islam. Uh, from their perspective, the, the, world, the whole world is divided into these two spheres. There's al-Jahiliya, the way of ignorance, and al-Islam, the way of submission. And those who live in the way of ignorance, they dwell in Dalarharb, which is the abode of warfare. And the goal of jihad is to expand the realm of Dar al-Islam until it covers the world. And so you have these texts from the Quran 9, uh, verse 73. O prophet, strive against the disbelievers and the hypocrites. Right? Now, there, there are two categories there, and they show up throughout the Quran the disbelievers and the hypocrites. And we'll talk about the difference between those in, in a moment. And he says, Be harsh with them. Their ultimate abode is hell, a hapless journey's end. In Sahih al Bukhari, uh, Muslim is recorded as saying, I have been ordered by Allah to fight against the people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that Muhammad is Allah's messenger. All right, what uh, Muhammad just described there, what's the word we've learned in the, in the class to describe that? That there is only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Anybody remember? That's the shahada, right? That's the confession of faith. That's how you become a Muslim is if you say there's uh, only one God, uh, Allah, la ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. You have to say that in Arabic and then you uh, convert to Islam. And I didn't convert just now. You have to do it from the heart. <laughs> uh, but notice what he says there. Only then will they save their lives and property from me. Only when they confess the Shahada. Now, how do you reconcile that with the verse from the Quran we saw earlier that there is no compulsion in religion? Um, the answer is you don't. In fact, you're not supposed to. There's something in Islam called the doctrine of abrogation. And, and here's what that means. It's that later 
revelation can abrogate, it can, it can replace and set aside earlier revelation. And so when, when a Muslim comes across contradictory elements in the Quran, uh, he's not just supposed to harmonize them. He's not just supposed to pick which one he likes. You're supposed to look chronologically which one came later. And that dictates how you interpret uh, the earlier revelation. So chapter 2 verse 10 says, Whatever verse we shall abrogate or cause you to forget, we will bring a better than it or one like unto it. And this shows up in chapter 16, 101. When we substitute one revelation for another... And God knows best what he reveals in stages. They say, you are but a forger. But most of them understand not. Now, this is really interesting. And we're going to look in a moment at, at the life of, of Muhammad and the early history of Islam. Uh, because you see a certain trajectory in Muhammad's life in the early stages of Islam. And it's a, it's a trajectory toward more violence. And you'll also see the similar trajectory reflected in, in the Quran when you understand it chronologically. Remember, the Quran is not arranged chronologically. It's arranged according to size. And so you, you have different surahs, different chapters of the Quran that are coming from different periods of Muhammad's life or supposedly from Muhammad's life. Uh, but they're not in that order. And, and so it can be a very uh, disorienting experience if you just open up the Quran and, and begin to to read it, but uh, this is providing the interpretive uh, grid. Uh, the final 10 years of Muhammad's life, uh, he was engaged in an average of nine battles per year. And uh, there are two surahs in particular that come toward the, the end of that period, which would be chapter 5 and chapter 9, and, and we'll uh, look in, in detail in some of those. Uh, but the doctrine of abrogation reflects uh, early Islamic history, and it's played out in uh, what are presented as the three stages of jihad, right? So this is how uh, typical Islam would understand jihad and how it's to be waged. It, it, there are three stages. In stage one, when Muslims are a minority in society and cannot win a confrontation with unbelievers, they're to live in peace with non-Muslims. And so under stage one of jihad, you are to preach a message of tolerance, and say things like, there's no compulsion in religion. And, uh, or what comes later on the Quran, you have your religion and I have mine. Um, but in stage two, when there are enough Muslims to defend the Islamic community, they're to engage in defensive jihad. And so chapter 22, verse 39, permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made because they are oppressed. And most surely, Allah is well able to assist them. Those who have been expelled from their homes without a just cause, except that they say, our Lord is law. In other words, all we've done is hold to Islam, and we have been oppressed, and so we are we're going to fight back against the oppressors. That's reflected in, in stage two of jihad. Uh, sometimes Muslims in the West will say that is Islam it only allows for defensive fighting, but uh, in stage three, when Muslims establish a majority and, and achieve power, they are to engage in offensive jihad. And let's look at how that plays out with certain groups of people. The Quran talks about jihad against idolaters. And again, from Surah 9, this is uh, the, the title of, of this surah is the disavowal. It's one of the final surahs that uh, Muhammad uh, received as, as revelation from the angel Gabriel and presented to the Muslim community. 
And in verse 4, it says, Give the disbelievers glad tidings of painful punishment. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Capture them, besiege them, and lie in wait for them at every place of ambush. But if they repent and perform the prayer and give the alms, then let them go their way. Truly, Allah is forgiving and merciful. Very much so. Uh, but, but notice... If they, if they repent, if they perform the prayers, these are technical terms for becoming a Muslim. So if they become a Muslim, spare them. Uh, but if not, the, the idolater or the mushrik can be engaged in warfare and killed. And it's in this chapter of the Quran that salvation is promised to those who die in jihad. We said last week that the Quran uh, doesn't really offer a, a consistent theology of salvation uh, clear path of how you're going to be forgiven in the end other than just your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds and hoping in the forgiveness of God. But really the only assurance of salvation, the only moment the Quran uh, steps forward and says, you are guaranteed paradise is in this case. Chapter 9, verse 111, truly God has purchased from the believers their souls and their wealth in exchange for the paradise being theirs. They fight in the way of God slaying and being slain. And uh, Muhammad is, is uh, quoted as saying, you know, somebody asked him, tell me, uh, what is there a better pursuit than to engage in jihad? And he says, I know not one. He says, there is nothing better to, to fight in jihad and, and to die in jihad. Uh, he says in Sahih al-Bakari, again, th this is the hadith. Uh, you, th there's, a, there's a man named Iman Bakari who collected together sayings of Muhammad, and uh, according to tradition, he tested them all for accuracy, and uh, he tried to find, okay, so who, who heard Muhammad say this? And he had this, this line of transmission called the Isnad, and, and, and this person heard from this person who heard from this person going back to Muhammad. And so most Muslims, whether or not they read Sahih al-Bakari, if it's, if it's quoted here, it's, it's as good as gold. From their perspective, this is something Muhammad said, and therefore something that we should uh, pay attention to. The person who participates in holy battles in Allah's cause will be recompensed by Allah either with a reward or booty if he survives or will be admitted to paradise if he is killed in the battle as a martyr. Now, their definition of martyr is pretty different from a Christian understanding of martyr, uh, right? We, we typically understand a martyr as somebody who was representing his faith and unjustly killed a result of that. Uh, suicide bombers are martyrs in this understanding of, of Islam. Uh, had I not found it difficult for my followers, then I would not remain behind any Syria going for jihad, and I would have loved to be martyred in Allah's cause, and then made alive, and then martyred, and then made alive, and then again martyred in his cause. Something else that Muhammad is, is quoted as, as saying is that... Uh, Anybody who enters paradise will never want to return here except the person who has died in jihad. And then he'll want to come back so that he can die in jihad again. And that's reflected in what he says here. Uh, there's a category in the Quran for jihad against the people of the book. We saw last week that the Quran has this, this conflicted relationship toward Jews and Christians, the people of the book. On the one hand, affirming things, affirming commonality. On the other hand, uh, denouncing them. Um, and part of that is, is again, the, the play out of history in Muhammad's relationship with the people of the book. And so the later surahs um, 
tend to see them as enemies of, of Islam and objects of jihad. Chapter 5, verse 51. Oh, you who believe, take not Jews and Christians as allies. They are the allies of one another. And whoever takes them as allies, surely he is of them. Now, that might be a verse from the Quran to know when it comes to policy decisions in the Middle East, right? Uh, radical Muslims are not going to come to peaceful terms with Israel, and they're not going to trust Western nations like the United States that, from their perspective, are Christian. Uh, the Quran commands them not to be allied in their, in their cause with Jews and Christians. Uh, Surah 9, verse 29, Fight those who believe not in God and in the last day, and who do not forbid what God and his messenger have forbidden, and who follow not the religion of truth among those who were given the book, till they pay the jizya, we'll talk about that in a second, with a willing hand being humbled. The Jews say that Ezra is the son of God, and the Christians say that the Messiah is the son of God. Those are the words from their mouths. They resemble to the words of those who disbelieve from before. God will destroy them, how they are perverted. Notice the reasoning there. It's because of the Christians' beliefs that they are to be the object of jihad. Because Christians believe that Jesus is God, they are just like the disbelievers or the, the idolaters. And this, this verse references paying the jizya. Which it's a tax on uh, Jews and Christians in Muslim lands. If, if a Christian uh, will not convert to Islam, uh, then they can be given what's called dhimmi status, uh, which is a, a, a second-class citizenship with all sorts of uh, restrictions that are placed upon their, their lives and their, their freedoms. They have to wear certain clothes. They have to shave their head a certain way. They're uh, not allowed to do certain things with, with Muslims. Uh, and they, are, are there, they must pay the jizya to, to demonstrate their uh, humility before uh, the Muslim state. Otherwise, uh, they can be killed. And in some cases, they're killed anyway. Uh, Sahih al-Muslim, this is another uh, collection of Hadith. Muhammad says, I will expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslim. Uh, Sahih al-Muslim uh, is the, the second uh, gold standard when it comes to Hadith. So if it's in Bukhari or, or Muslim, then it's, it's as good as gold uh, in terms of Muslims believing that uh, Muhammad said this. Uh, there's also a category in the Quran for jihad against Muslims. There have been thousands of Muslims that have been killed by ISIS and other terrorist organizations and expelled from their homes. And so some people will take that as evidence uh, that ISIS isn't truly Islamic. Right? They'll, they'll say this is obviously not religiously motivated because they're killing other Muslims, for goodness sake. Well, there, there's a category in Islam for someone who claims to be a Muslim but is not a true Muslim. This is the, the accusation of uh, takfir. And we saw it earlier when we talked about striving against the unbelievers and the hypocrites. All right, here's this other, other category here. 49 verse 15 says, The true believers are those only who believe in Allah and His messenger and afterward doubt not, but strive with their wealth and their lives for the cause of Allah. Such are the sincere. All right, so the implication is if you're not striving 
with your life for Allah's cause, if you're complacent, uh, then, then you're not sincere. You're, you're a hypocrite. Uh, you're not a true believer, and so you're the, the subject. You can become subject to everything that the unbelievers are put under. And we see all these things uh, played out in the early history of Islam and in the life of Muhammad as we know it. Um, just a, a caveat about uh, the history that's involved here. Uh, there is a, there's a debate in the world of scholarship as to how much we can really know about Muhammad's life and the early uh, Muslim community because of the, the sources, because of the, uh, how few sources there are and the distance in time uh, that we have in, in terms of the earliest sources and, and how far back they go. And so you have uh, different scholarly viewpoints uh, you have some very skeptical scholars, and you even have people who claim that Muhammad never existed. Um, uh, but what matters is that, not so much for us, uh, but what matters is what the early centuries of Muslims uh, believed about what Muhammad said and did, and what uh, Muslims today continue to draw from uh, for sources on his life. And, and the reason why is because Muslims hold Muhammad as their highest moral example and, and as the final authority along with Allah in, in all their decisions. He's the basis for personal ethics. And so Muslims are to pattern their lives after Muhammad as closely as possible. Again, and we're just going to make this distinction as much as we need to make it. Uh, most Muslims would not be aware of what I'm about to share with you. Uh, you know, Muslims, especially from a Western variety, they're, they're not reading the Hadith. They may have read from the Quran some. Uh, they, they have a, a, a version of Muhammad's life that's very different from what I'm about to share. But what I am about to share is the standard Muslim interpretation of Muhammad's life throughout the centuries. And, and so in that sense, is part of the Islamic uh, consciousness throughout throughout history. It's important to raise the question, how have Muslims understood Muhammad's actions? And Robert Spencer makes that, that point in his biography, The Truth About Muhammad, Founder of the World's Most Intolerant Religion. And that clues you a little bit in on his perspective there. And if you want the uh, politically incorrect version of Muhammad's life drawn from the early Islamic sources, then you can check out Spencer's book. But uh, the early stages of, of uh, Islam they're divided into these two periods. Uh, there is the Meccan period and the Medinan period. And in week one, we looked at a basic uh, outline of Muhammad's life. And so there's this early period where he is in Mecca. Uh, remember, when he, about age 40 or so, he receives uh, the first revelation of the Quran uh, from the angel Gabriel. He begins to preach this message of monotheism and becomes quickly the least popular man in town. Uh, because at this time, Mecca is uh, tremendously polytheistic. The Kaaba housed uh, 360 tribal deities at the time. And, and, and polytheism is the, the basis for the Meccan economy, right? All the, the travel and the exchange, it's all wrapped around uh, this, this polytheistic system. And so uh, in the early period of uh, Muhammad's ministry, he is a minority. Uh, he is persecuted. Uh, he's not viewed favorably. He's, he's protected some because his, his uncle, who became his adoptive uh, father, uh, kind of helped uh, protect him because he was an import, important in, in society there. Uh, but they, they were a persecuted 
people, and it's, it's in these uh, early stages. You, you, you divide the Quran into two categories broadly. There are the Meccan surahs and the Medinan surahs. Now, again, it's not like, hey, the first half are the Meccan surahs and the second half are the Medinan surahs. Uh, they are interspersed throughout the Quran. And in some surahs, you'll have, uh, you'll have an ayah coming from the Meccan period and one coming from the Medinan period. So it's not, again, it's not arranged according to this order. But that does give you a little bit of the, uh, the background for this. But the, the Meccan surahs are the ones that tend to lean more toward a message of tolerance uh, these are, uh, you know, there are more favorable statements in the Quran, in the Meccan surahs, toward the people of the book, al-Kitab, the Jews and, and the Christians. There's an appeal to commonality with them. And, and, and in some ways, that reflects what we saw as stage one of jihad, right? The, the message that's given there when, when uh, Muslims are living in the minority, they're going to make a case for, you know, we think that religious views that aren't in the norm should be tolerated and, and accepted. And so that's what's reflected in the, in the Meccan period. The most important date uh, in Islam and, 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 and what starts the Islamic calendar is A.D. 622. And uh, this is Muhammad's hijra or his flight to Medina. Shortly after uh, Muhammad is in Medina, he uh, begins to take control there. Uh, the Jews in Medina initially see Muhammad as a, as a fellow monotheist, and so they respect him from that standpoint. Uh, the Arabs in Medina see Muhammad as a fellow Arab, and so early on, he gains influence in, in this this area, and he uh, begins to lead raids on, on Meccan caravans. Um, several of the initial raids are, are unsuccessful, but the first successful raid is called the Nakla raid, and it was very controversial because uh, Muhammad sent a, a, a force to attack a Meccan caravan uh, during a holy month when there was considered to be a truce among all Arabs. And so uh, Muslims raider, Muslim raiders shaved their heads. They made it look like they were on pilgrimage, that they were honoring the uh, holy month. And so when the Meccans saw the Muslims approaching, they, they lowered down their guard because there's supposed to be a time of peace. And at that, at that moment, uh, the Muslims attacked and killed undefended Meccans. Uh, this was very confusing. It was, it was disillusioning even to the early Muslim community. Uh, but then a revelation from the Quran comes to settle everything. Chapter 2, verse 217, they ask you about fighting in the holy months. Tell them fighting in the holy months is a great sin, but a greater sin is to prevent mankind from following the way of Allah, to disbelieve in him. And that clues you in on the moral reasoning that shows up in a variety of places in the Quran and the life of Muhammad. Certain moral boundaries can be crossed if there's a greater reason, and uh, that greater reason typically has to do with advancing Islam and protecting the, the interest of Allah's prophets. Uh, these raids led to the first major battle in Islam, the Battle of Badr, and this was uh, basically 313 Muslims that were up against 1,000 Meccans uh, who were trained in warfare, and, and there, there is a remarkable victory that the Muslim community has against the, the Meccans at this battle. And they uh, interpret this as the favor of God upon their cause 
and, and a call from Allah to, to continue to engage in, in warfare. And so uh, a theology of warfare begins to enter Muslim theology much more significantly at this point. And so 865 says, O Prophet, rouse the believers to fight. If there are 20 patient men among you, they will overcome 200. And if there are 100 with you, they will overcome 1,000 disbelievers because they are the people who do not understand, right? The way of ignorance, that is, that is the, the realm in which we all live. And the goal of jihad is to expand uh, the realm of Islam. The final 10 years of Muhammad's life are marked by warfare. Uh, Muslims will often say Muhammad only engaged in defensive battles, but we've already seen that's, that's not the case. Uh, two other major battles are the Battle of Uhud and the Battle of the Trench. Those did not go as well for, for the Muslims. In fact, uh, Muhammad was significantly wounded and almost lost his life in the Battle of Uhud. Uh, but after the Battle of the Trench, um, the one remaining tribe of Jews in Medina uh, was accused by Muhammad of, of helping the Meccans. And so uh, Muhammad had all of the adult men beheaded. And he sold the women and, and the children in, into slavery. He tried to figure out, okay, all, were all the men that have reached the age of puberty and all of them were, were beheaded. And, and there is a turn in, in Muhammad's attitude at this point uh, toward the Jews. And, and that brings up something that you, appear, you see appearing in the early sources, which is this portrait of, of Muhammad as personally vindictive. Uh, there, there was a, a man named Abu Afak who was a poet uh, who lamented the death of some, some people that were killed at the hands of Muhammad. And Muhammad hears of this, and he says, who will deal with this rascal for me? And then somebody volunteers to go forward and, and kill him. Well, then there's this other woman who laments his death in poetry. Poetry is like the, was like the blogosphere of the 7th century. You know, it's like when something happens that you're, you're not proud of, you, you, you post it out there in the world of Twitter. Uh, when Muhammad finds out about uh, this woman's poem, he asks, who will rid me of? And he names her and, and, and uh, has her killed as well. And there's just a, a number of poets that Muhammad ordered killed. And, and one author describes this as Muhammad's dead poet society. Uh, but it's not unlike the assassination of journalists by Islamic extremists today. You insult Islam. You insult uh, the prophet Muhammad. There is, there is justification in the early sources for that kind of response. Uh, one third of the known world... Uh, well, before I say that, the, 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 Muhammad's life closes toward the end. You know, we saw that he marches on Mecca with uh, 10,000 soldiers, takes control there, cleanses out the Kaaba, uh, pardons uh, most of his enemies at that point. And m Muslims will often point this uh, out as Muhammad's uh, mercy, that these people who had killed his family and persecuted him, he spared uh, the vast majority of him, and there was an act of mercy there. Uh, but a third of the known world is conquered by Islam within 150 years of Muhammad's death. And uh, Muslims will refer to this, this period as the golden age of Islam. And Muhammad is quoted as saying that the most important generation is the first generation of Islam and the generation that came after them and then the generation that came after them. And these early generations of Islam were marked by, uh, they were characterized by warfare. All right. What do we do with all this information? Uh, well, this is not intended to incite fear 
or hatred on our part. This is not intended to create any sort of reluctance when it comes to um, establishing friendships and relationships and gospel opportunities among Muslims. This is designed to enable us to understand. Uh, there are some basic foreign policy mistakes that have come uh, from a failure to understand radical Islam. Uh, for example, in the early 1980s, when we were fighting uh, Soviets in Afghanistan, the United States, uh, we allied ourselves with this uh, young, uh, wealthy Saudi man, and we, we funneled all sorts of money and weapons and recruiting power to his, uh, to his group of Mujahideen or Jihadis. Uh, anybody know who that man was? Osama bin Laden, right? Uh, we were simply ignorant of, of what we were dealing with at the time. Uh, people often describe radicalization. Uh, what, what causes uh, Westerners to, to travel across the world and join in ISIS or strap on a bomb and blow up a building or, or uh, shoot out people, all these things? What, what causes that? Uh, people often explain that in terms of economic considerations, uh, joblessness, or, or you know, uh, a feeling of being a minority viewpoint and, and all of that. And, and, and no doubt those are factors that are involved. Uh, we have common humanity and common sin with all these people, and all those factors are influential. But at the other, on the other hand, it doesn't really fit the evidence. Uh, many of the, you know, the, the jihadis that will show up in the news or the latest case of, of, an, of an attack uh, on the continental United States or in Europe are coming from people who are pretty wealthy and who were employed and who had many opportunities. And so you can't explain radicalization apart from the religious factor here. And so often we try to put on these secular lenses and we only look at the, the, the natural factors that are involved and, and ignore that there is actually a strong religious motivation and basis for people to be radicalized. And what happens is ISIS today has more uh, you know, availability through social media and the internet to get these statements from the Quran and these statements from the life of Muhammad out there in public view. And so whereas, you know, the past several centuries, most Muslims would have no access to these sources unless they were wealthy scholars. Now anybody can go to sahialbakari.com and check out these things. And so it, it, it provides, a, a, you know, it's persuasive when the ISIS pamphlet is quoting from Muhammad, the guy you're supposed to model your life after. And so uh, that's just important for us to understand. People often say that uh, Islam is in need of a reformation. Uh, but what, what's not understood there is, is groups like the Islamic Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and ISIS are the Reformation from their perspective, right? Uh, the progressive, peaceful Muslim is really, it's more like the liberal Christian who says, you know, we need to change and we need to accept homosexuality now and we, we need to be more loving and tolerant in the community today. Uh, the Muslims that are making that case by these groups, they're, they're, they're seen to, to be the, those who are departing from true Islam. Now, personally, I hope the progressive Muslims win, right? Since Islam is false, I've got no case to make that, you know, you really should be true to this. Uh, no, I, I'd rather my life be spared. Uh, but it won't help us today uh, to, to fail to recognize that the radicals actually have a basis for what they're, they're doing. Um, there's a lot that we could discuss here, but I'll, I'll conclude with this is also designed to enable us 
to engage. Uh, because helping a Muslim to see the violence in the early period of Islam uh, could, could be part of the process of helping them come to see that Islam is, is false. And there are people in, in these nations losing their religion when they, when they see Sharia law enforced, when they come face to face uh, with what Islam does to a society. They, it causes them to, to check and, and reflect and, and come to see, wait, this is, this is not what I thought I was following here. Uh, now, here's an important qualification here. Just because you share this information with uh, a Muslim living in the United States uh, does not mean that they'll believe you. <laughs> um, Islam is, is much more about authority than it is about just independent facts. And so we tend to, it's like, just tell me the, the facts, give me the citation, give me the sources. Uh, they'll say, that's not what my imam says. Uh, that's not what my parents taught me. And, and that argument holds weight because this is, a, this is a religion that puts a lot of emphasis on, on uh, strength and, and authority. And so uh, this is just information for us to be helped by. And, 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 and it may come into play if we, not only for us understanding the world around us, but for uh, us engaging in the Muslims that God uh, puts us in contact with. I put two... Uh, Resources, well, a couple of resources are at the table and listed in your notes. A lot of people will, will say that the violence in Islam is no different than the conquest in the Old Testament or the Crusades in the Middle Ages. And so I, I noted some resources that could help you if you want to read a little bit more about that. All right, well, we are going to close there. Sorry that we are over time again. Uh, but we have one more week. Next week, we will, we will look at the question of who is Isa ibn Maryam, who is Jesus, uh, in the Quran, but especially who is Jesus in the Gospels, and that's going to help us uh, understand uh, what, what kind of scriptures should come into play when, it, when we engage with uh, Muslims, all right? Uh, we will see you next week. Be blessed today.